There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. We've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Scott Turner. Scott is the co-founder of the Healthy Future Arizona Initiative, a group that's working to combat the rise of obesity and diabetes, specifically in young people. We had a great conversation that went from strategies for improving nutrition, increasing the amount of exercise the kids get, to the current costs of this epidemic, as well as what future costs will be if things don't change. You can find out more information about Scott and what he's working on at healthyfutureaz.org. Definitely encourage you to check that out. If you would like to take action on this issue, click contact in the show notes and we'll get you what you need to make that happen. Thanks as always for listening. Remember to tell a friend. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Miner. Good day, sir. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Scott Turner. Scott is the founder, president, CEO of Edgenuity, as well as the co-founder of Healthy Future Arizona Initiative. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Great to be here. Centauri, I'm curious, where do you keep all your participation trophies that you got as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> I think George is alluding to the fact that I was a chubby child. That's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not what I was talking about at all. <laughs> oh, George. Absolutely not. Well, thanks for being here, Scott. Um, you're working on some big challenges, some big problems. So how'd you get started with that? What are you working on? Well, I was in business for 30 years and um, I w- got to the point in my career where I was looking kind of the next stage and what I should do with that and decided I didn't you know, really want to do another kind of business startup. I really wanted to look more broadly at some of the issues we've got as a society and trying to figure out how I could plug in and maybe use my background, my skills and interests and have some sort of impact beyond what I could do just through a, a kind of a business, mm-hmm. you know, using pure business organization as a vehicle. And so um, I thought about um, my own background, you know, I had a lot of exposure to health. I'd also been working in the education area. And so I put those things together. I started to do some research and I found out that um, the whole health situation in the U.S. is extremely serious and it's been heading that direction for many decades. And now you're starting to see that come home to roost and people are really feeling a lot of financial pain. Um, as well as health uh, problems. And uh, so I, I just thought maybe there's a way I could plug in there. And so I started looking into to how to do that. And what did you figure out? Well, um, one thing I did was I knew that to really have the biggest impact, I needed to get involved in the policy arena in some way. And I also, since I wasn't that familiar certainly with the health arena I had exposure to it personally I had people in my family um, with mental health issues with serious uh, um, physical health issues and so I'd had that kind of um, subjective exposure but I didn't really get the big picture and so I thought well while I'm still working I can go back to school part-time and at that point there were distance learning 
uh, PhD programs, and so I plugged into that, and that through that process, since I was in a, a program that was called Human and Organizational Systems, and since I was looking for systemic change, um, that was a great way for me to start exploring some of the areas that seem to be the biggest problem areas where I might be able to have an impact. Lots of problems, you know, I just didn't feel like I could do much about. Right. And so as I looked at the health area, um, I realized, you know, I don't really think I can add much on the healthcare delivery area, you know, how we make the system more efficient and such. There's a lot of politics um, around that, and there's a lot of special interests that are heavily embedded in that area, and I just didn't think I could help there. But I thought, maybe I can help if we go work on the prevention side, and that's the crossover into education as well, prevention through education. Got it. And I gave a little bit, of, I gave uh, the listeners a little bit of background about the work that you're doing in the introduction, but just to clarify, it's, is it diet and exercise? Well, what we, what we've tried to do was understand what the main root causes of the main health problems we've got nowadays. And the main problems are chronic conditions. So recurring conditions like diabetes and heart disease that you tend to have over a long period of time that will get resolved through just like one operation or take a medicine for two weeks and, and it's over with, which is acute problems. Right. And that most of the costs are chronic costs from those chronic conditions. And most of those chronic conditions are preventable. Um, but like you, you mentioned, um, when you try to get at what are the root causes of those chronic conditions, um, then diet and exercise are a key part of that. So physical activity and nutrition. Um, and then the other one that we've actually done a pretty good job getting a hold of is smoking. And so that to me is kind of like the case study for how this can be done. And we need to now apply a lot of those lessons that we learned from how did we get smoking from 42% of adults to 17% of adults, mm -hmm. which is what we've done over the last 50 years. Hmm. And what, how, can we, how can we use the best practices mm -hmm. from that arena plus some new ideas? So in a previous podcast, we talked on preventative medicine, but can you give us a little bit about the scope of what that looks like? So of the five big diseases in, in the United States, how many are pre preventative and how much of this is working at the, at the systems level at a very young age to just say this doesn't have to happen at all? Well, the um, kind of there, there's several categories and there's a lot of overlap between categories. Mm -hmm. So the biggest categories tend to be um, cardiovascular disease, of which we usually think of like heart disease as the main part of that. Um, and then often um, people put strokes, uh, brain strokes in as, as part of that. Um, diabetes, um, obesity, and obesity and diabetes and heart disease all have a significant overlap. And cancer, those are kind of seen as the main, um, the biggest kind of chronic types of uh, conditions. And of course, some cancers are more acute. You can deal with them immediately, but a lot of times you are gonna have uh, a survivor status, but you still need to watch and uh, and keep an eye on that cancer now. Monitor it. cancers, there's different um, estimates on that, but it could be that 40 to 60 percent or more of cancers are actually preventable. Mm. And when you think about it, that oh, includes wow. things like cancers from smoking, 
because if you don't have to, if you don't smoke, only ninety percent of lung cancer is linked to smoking. So if we reduce the number of people who are smoking, we dramatically reduce lung cancer, emphysema, and things like that. COPD. Wow. Um, now, um, also other kinds of cancer, there, colon cancer, and such. There's many um, links by certain types of cancer to um, lack of physical activity, unhealthy nutrition, um, and a lot of people are also um, if they smoke alongside all that, it just it all uh, builds on each other and makes it worse than it would be if you just had one of those areas that you weren't being being healthy. Go figure. Yeah. So uh, anyway, the uh, so those so those uh, really the I'd say the vast majority of um, co of health costs in the country have some kind of preventable element to them, and um, you. There's still a fair number of um, conditions that are, say, purely genetic. It wasn't um, triggered by something that you did or whatever, uh, something you could have prevented. It's purely a genetic thing, like a lot of type 1 diabetes, mm -hmm. what used to be called juvenile diabetes and such. Um, obviously, certain kinds of cancers, too. They just happen, sure. and there's really nothing that you could have done about it. But what we're focusing on is that majority of those conditions mm -hmm. that we can prevent. And the, the the reason that education is so important is because it's so much easier to change behaviors with working with kids than if you start working with them as adults. So on that subject, can you walk us through the program? How does it work? What's the delivery? Well, the what is part of um, figuring out kind of exactly what steps do I take personally and how do I plug into this? Um, I spent a lot of time talking to education and health leaders, political leaders um, in, in, in the state. And we, um, as part of that kind of networking, I found out about a program that's based in the Tucson area. It's called, it was called Empower Youth Fitness, now it's called Empower Youth Health. It's a K-12 based program that has had a significant impact on the kids in a very low income part of Tucson. And then pieces of that have been used elsewhere, but it was all put together in, in one particular district. And it was when I found out about it, I, I got some data on it, found out that when they did a baseline study on the kids where they were at the beginning of the program before they started, and only 17% of those kids had aerobic fitness, had cardiovascular fitness. The rest of the kids were already, even at that young age, um, were in danger of developing problems later in life. Wow. By the um, year three of that study, 78% of the kids were fit, so the four times improvement. Wow. And they, when we, after I met with them and we, we basically looked at boiling it down to what are the key parts of this that we could take and then bring to schools throughout the state and eventually throughout the country. And so when, when we actually added those up and looked at the cost of that, we realized we can have the vast majority of those benefits for about $10 per student per year. So um, that program has been a, a key focus of what we're doing, and we're, we're working on getting the resources to scale that up. We've got a waiting list of over 100 schools, and we're focusing on the first 90 of that, um, for about a million dollars a year to, to start off with. And then we're um, going to um, grow, the, grow the program from there. We focus on lower-income communities first, because that's where the health issues are the biggest challenge. You have 90 schools that are interested in this program? 
Yeah, we've got, well, we've got over 90 schools interested, but we've got 90 that kind of, um, we went through the first screen and decided that those folks were ready for the program because you want schools that are um, interested in it, they're motivated, they, they really are going to implement uh, the key parts of it. You right. don't want to be having a program out there and thinking that things are going to be okay and actually there's not enough support. So you want to have support from the very top. Right. So from the principal on down through uh, the teachers. Through so the there's an accountability staff. actually going on? Yeah, well, you're constantly measuring how things are, are going and you're checking to see if those kids are you're seeing that improvement. So because you should be seeing that gradual improvement over the the life of the program. I see it as something we just continue, that it gets built into the, the DNA of those schools, and that it's something that, that where we've increased physical activity enough, and we have it on a regular enough basis, we can improve nutrition at the school. The kids um, have learned better nutrition habits. A lot of those are sort of impacting their, their home life with their families, mm -hmm. and, and you're seeing an even broader impact outside of the children and into the families and, and the community through that. So that's a key part of what we're doing is, is that, that program. But we see that as a beginning. That's kind of a foundation where you get the, um, the school on board and comfortable with how do you fit more minutes of activity into a really busy school day where they're trying to focus on reading, writing, and math and science. And now you're saying, hey, we need to be spending time in these other areas. So for our listeners, can you kind of, again, distill what the program, like in action, what does the program look like? Yeah. Um, I think of it as kind of a, as a new, uh, I use PTA because a lot of folks are used to that acronym in education. But in this case, the, the P stands for plan. So you have to have a plan for how you're going to improve health at the school, of which this program is a key part of it. And then you train, so you're going to train, the T is for training, you're going to train the key staff, the food services folks, the administrators, um, even some older students who can help lead activities as, as peers. Um, and then A, assess. So you're going to make sure that you're making the progress that you, that you know you can make if it's implemented correctly. And so then you use those results to figure out maybe where you need to improve, and you just keep that cycle going, keep planning, training, and and assessing and redoing that ongoing and it's, I see it as a permanent process. So for a student, is it more, is it exercise in the classroom? Is it nutrition? What are they actually doing? You, you do a combination because a lot of schools, even the, the national recommendation for the Institute of Medicine, which is part of the National um, Academy of Sciences, is just 60 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity. Now, a lot of kids just are not getting any physical activity at home nowadays. Um, and it's, it's a sad, but it's true, and we just need to deal with that fact. So that means that we need to be doing that activity at school. But in a school day that's very tight, you know, roughly six hours at, at school, um, then you need to fit within something that the school finds acceptable. So what we do is we'll have activity breaks during class time. So you can just stand up next to your desk and quickly do five minutes of exercise. Then you also have um, a, a longer kind of a recess type break. You might go outside, get exercise out there. Then some of that time would be physical education class. And um, there's typically a lunch recess in almost all schools. And when you add that up, you can get very close to that 60 minutes without really being a significant disruption. 
And in fact, when you do it well and you do it with this kind of a program that gives you that framework and that training and that plan, um, then um, schools find that they actually can improve academic achievement mm. because of the, the neuroscience you know, uh, that's involved with physical activity. Small bites throughout the day. There's so much to, to, to talk about because these topics are enormous. Um, to a degree, I heard you say that you're almost re-engineering this, where if you empower the children, they can then go home and hopefully teach the parents about nutrition, about exercise. Yeah, there's, um, there's some evidence, too, from, and I, I reference smoking as a, kind of a best practice and how we started uh, fighting against um, the smoking habits. And education in schools of the children was a key part of that and that created pressure on the parents because children mm -hmm. would go home and say hey, mom and dad I don't want you to die please stop smoking that is much more effective than having a doctor tell them mm -hmm. uh, or having friends tell them having their children tell them I'm concerned that I'm not going to have parents around hmm. now the, the, there is a similar threat from things like diabetes and heart disease that those things um, can um, um, really disable parents um, or kill parents as well. Mm. Once kids learn about that, that helps them to then kind of lobby their parents, advocate with their parents to help change those habits. Now, another part of what we um, want to do in the future, though, is have an even bigger parental component um, through the school. For so, we're, so we're not just reaching out to parents through the children, but actually are including parents, and we're actually talking to them directly and educating them um, directly as well. And um, since the school is typically kind of a hub in these local communities, um, then you can create um, ways to do that. It's, um, we do that more indirectly at first, but there is a um, kind of uh, an ability to add more and more parental components mm -hmm. over time and more community components too, because you can add things like community walks where the school is a key part of that, but you're inviting in the community to be on a walkathon, that type of thing. So. There's elements where you can bring in both parents and other parts of the community as part of this. And again, what you do is you use that plan to bring in those other pieces right. of the puzzle. So, I was going to say, as you look to, to scale this, what does it look like from a public policy standpoint? Um, well, the policy is a key part of it. Um, there's one example. One thing we've been working on recently is that um, schools in the the state are graded, like kids are graded, and they're given an A through F grade. And um, how that grade is calculated has a big impact on where they focus their priorities. So what um, what we're doing is um, we've been working with the State Board of Education, which is in the middle of redoing that formula. And in the past, it's only included um, reading, uh, writing, and math, and a little bit of science. And so what we've been advocating for is to also include physical and health education indicators or metrics as part of that formula. Mm. And so we um, were fortunate that on January 20th, we had a major vote by the, the State Board of Education Committee that's responsible for this. And they did vote six to three for the first time, as far as we know, in the whole country to include physical and health education metrics in the school wow. accountability formula. And we still have a, uh, some part of that process to go through, but that was a key breakthrough, we feel, uh, because that sends the signal to school leaders that you can't just maximize 
your reading, writing, and math, and then kind of cut recess to, to have more time to focus on, you have to actually balance those things. And so you, you, you're having plenty of time for reading, writing, math, and science, but you're also doing the physical activity, you're doing the nutrition education, mm -hmm. and that's all part of a whole child education. And we do feel that kind of things are moving in that way nationally too. There's a lot more concern that we've cut back physical activity too much. A lot of schools have literally zero recess in this country. I mean, not even at lunchtime. I mean, no recess for an entire six hour plus day. You can imagine little kids trying to function right. with their brain when they haven't had any. And they're, so they're for six hours completely sedentary. Yeah. Wow. How about for 24 hours they're completely sedentary? Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I read today, I apologize, that kids aged two through five watch 32 hours of TV a week or they're in front of a TV watching wow. DVDs or playing or video other games. Or of different kinds, yeah. It's um, that, and that's what, another reason why we're seeing less, very little physical activity in, in many homes. Now, one of the kind of objections we've had in the past is, hey, listen, you know, people need to raise their kids the way they see fit, and if they don't want their kids to get exercise, that's their choice, or, they, or you know, people should be able to eat whatever they want, drink whatever they want. So what we're saying is that there's a cost to all of that, and everybody shares in that cost. When people get sick, that becomes part of this whole pool of costs, and um, we end up paying for everybody right. else's health care costs. <clears throat> and so everybody... But also, we don't want to have just a punitive approach where we're saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. We want people to buy into it. So what we need to do is help educate um, those folks on what's the you know, what's a healthy way to, um, to act, what's good for you, what's realistic for you to do. Mm -hmm. And um, this foundation in the schools is a key part of that because that's the least expensive way to do that because you have that captive audience mm -hmm. at, a, at a stage where people are, are young and they're, 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 they're happy to change. They... And and they they really like the physical activity, and um, they're not used to just sitting there. At that point, they're not locked into that way of right. doing things. So it's a it's a really unique opportunity for us. And then other pieces need to be added on later. So for example, in, in smoking, we have these massive um, taxes on tobacco to discourage folks from smoking, and um, we have um, warning labels on. Uh, cigarettes and uh, we have big public information campaigns against cigarettes and we prohibit advertising of, of cigarettes and such. We do none of that um, in the area of food and beverages for example. So, But it takes a while for the public to get used to the idea that hey we should do something about that. Right now we're focusing more on the hey we need to increase physical activity, people need to eat more healthily, but we think over time that um, that the public will um, buy into, hey, we need to do something more because we're making some improvements, mm -hmm. but but it needs to be really major for us to, to, to have better health and for us to reduce the cost of the healthcare system. Uh, right now, we are already approximately two to three times more expensive than any other major country in terms of our cost per person. And um, that's starting to um, impact a lot of working class and, and middle class families where they're starting to pay 10 to 20% of their entire family income just for their health costs. And we've all heard about, for example, the EpiPen, you know, that people are paying higher deductibles now. And so they're ending up paying five to $10,000 for their family. Well, 
if your household income um, is typically in the U.S. is in the 50, 50 to sixty thousand dollars per household range, and you're paying ten thousand a year for your health costs, then you have very little money left for anything else. Um, so a mm. lot of people are feeling that pain mm. now, and um, I think they're becoming more and more responsive to what can we do about this? This is a really serious problem, and even even in you're seeing legislators and Congress people are realizing, hey, wait a second here, we actually have to have a serious solution here, not just talking points around it. Yeah, it's a legitimate crisis. There's no two ways about that. But I also appreciate people not wanting the government to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. But when your behavior is costing the rest of your fellow citizens an enormous amount of money, then something does need to change. I, I love the fact that you can look at smoking and the differences that education has made. But what was it really, do you think? Because it wasn't, I intellectually understand that smoking is bad for me. Just like I intellectually understand right. that that I should exercise and I shouldn't just eat cheeseburgers all day long, right? So what's really going to impact the behavioral change? Well, right. It's really, it's a combination of, of things. There's no, it's typically not a, uh, a lot of policy around behavior is not a silver bullet type thing where there's just one thing we need to do. Mm-hmm. But it's smoking, like I, I went through a list of different things that were done. And yes, um, education was a key part of it, but I would never say it's the, it's, you know, it's the only thing or the main thing. Um, there's a lot of other pieces to it. And, um, but like I said, right now, society isn't ready for a really aggressive um, mm-hmm. move and adoption of a lot of the things that worked uh, in the smoking arena, and but over time, I believe that they're becoming more and more conscious of the issues and the costs. And through the schools, hopefully, we're educating both the children. And as they grow older, they're going to have a different attitude. But also, there's going to be some impact on the parents and the extended family and the community. And eventually, we'll have support for other changes. And this is not something that I feel we should be imposing on the public. I think it's something where the public needs to really take ownership of it and say, yes, this is something that we need to start doing. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 I definitely hear where you're coming from that we don't, we don't want to be seen to be forcing people to do stuff, stuff that, that, that they don't want to do. What we want them to do is understand the, the issues, understand how serious it is, and, and then say, hey, you know what, we should be doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we'll get there. So are you seeing any... Um do you have any major pushback on this? You know, I actually have even, I wasn't expecting a lot of pushback and I have even less pushback than I expected. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean, now, that's different than saying that we, you know, we make a proposal and everyone says, okay, let's do it right now. Um, so, for example, on that change in the A3F formula, that, that took, it's the culmination of really two and a half years of working with the mm. education community, the health community, mm. um, and bringing in other folks. And we, we had a number of testimonies there from, for example, parents that were really important. And um, so when you start getting though that kind of coalition of, of, of folks that are all saying, hey, we should do this, then, then the policymakers, legislators and such, then they get to a certain point where they start hearing about it from different perspectives and they feel there's enough of a consensus around it and then they feel more comfortable actually making a significant change mm-hmm. in, in, in policy. And uh, so I think we're, we're kind of heading in that right direction. 
the change in the hate draft formula is part of that. A bill now at the legislature to increase recess time is it potentially going to be another part of that. If not this session, then perhaps the next session. Um, and there's a lot of pieces that will come together over time, but it's from the culmination of a lot of different people working on this from all different sectors of society, in nonprofits, government agencies, um, private companies, key individuals and such, and uh, for example, uh, the whole Let's Move campaign um, with uh, Michelle Obama. Mm -hmm. She was really a key, key mm -hmm. leader in bringing attention to this right. uh, because at that point it was a particular problem in the lower income populations and a lot of folks just didn't know that was really going on. And so she really brought that to our attention. Um, now it's becoming more and more widespread and it's, it's uh, you have obesity rates nationally for adults only 36%. Right. And so it's really um, now becoming much more kind of mainstream problem that people are seeing everywhere. Yeah, First Lady Obama worked extremely hard at that. I think starting from when, maybe even before, she became the first lady. I think that when Barack became a senator, she was working on that initiative. Mm. And obviously, like any great idea, you get a lot of pushback. And I think that there was a lot of pushback from the food that, that she was saying that we should serve. It wasn't big enough portions or it's too bland. Right. And, you know, <laughs> that's one of the – and there were some good points made, um, some concerns about the way it was uh, done. And what happened was – the food services uh, industry, for example, at first, they were just focusing on the nutrition part of it, and they were seeing kids, you know, dumping stuff in the in, in the mm. trash bin, not eating their food, and that became a big concern. And so, what happened was, they started adjusting the formula, and they realized, hey, if we do this and this and this, we can actually make it much tastier, and it's still going to be nutritionally very good. And so, you you can. Um, the food time. service industry was working on that? Yes, because what's happening is in a lot of um, school districts, they're outsourcing more and more services. Of course, because yeah. Because their core business is teaching. Right. And so uh, a lot of them are using third parties to come in and provide those food services, uh, other kinds of services, janitorial services, whatever. And so um, they, those folks were hearing this message from lots of different schools, and, and so they adjusted the diets and now um, they're the, the kids are eating a much bigger portion and that's still very nutritious mm. so but there was a lot of pushback there's a lot of you know ideology wars about some of this some of it's kind of uh, it gets very partisan but what what we take is a nonpartisan approach where we try to find um, a message that resonates with folks on both all both sides and the middle of the and the spectrum yeah, because believe it or not, food is partisan. Who knew? <laughs> From the research that I did, the food service industry that goes to schools is between 15 or $30 billion a year. So that's certainly big business, just like prescription drugs and everything else. And I also read, I, I got a kick out of this that, I, I'm going to misquote this, but pizza manufacturers lobbied pretty heavily to make sure that uh, tomato sauce got classified as a vegetable when it came to school right. lunch. And they were successful, and perhaps that got overturned. That was an older article, but there's um, <laughs> yes, and at one point, uh, ketchup was considered acceptable as a vegetable. Right. Oh wow. That type of thing. So there's, and you know what? <clears throat> there is going to be ongoing right. politics with all those kinds you bet. of things. Like, um, what we're what we're really working out 
on as more of a grassroots level rather than the federal level. And so we're starting in school districts, we're starting with state policy, and you know, states really set the vast majority of education policy, the vast majority of education funding, and also pay for a big chunk of Medicaid costs, which here we call access in Arizona. And so they um, are a major player in all of these policies. And, um, and even though, for example, Medicaid money, which is the, the program for lower income um, families and individuals um, that provides uh, nearly free um, health care, um, um, that's got a lot of uh, uh, federal money, and yet the state can get waivers and try new things out. So there's great opportunities at the state level to start doing some new things and just get the federal government's often willing to sign off on that. And they know they've got major cost problems, mm. Medicaid, and it's becoming unaffordable for them to, to keep providing 15 to 75% of the costs on that to the states. So that's why I mean that things are starting to, I think, move in the right direction as far as awareness. And I think we're getting close to some key tipping points for some major policy changes. And um, I, I do believe that uh, things that might have been very hard to do, say, 10 years ago in the public policy front that schools might not have been as open to, that they're, they're now much more open to. And our, our pitches to the health sector is that the health sector has traditionally been thinking in clinical terms. You, you go to a hospital or you go to a doctor's office to be treated for something, and that's typically a more of a reactive model. And the main prevention is things like getting your annual physical and, in particular, getting vaccination so that you don't get measles or polio and, and other kinds of diseases. So what we are, um, the way we're talking about it to healthcare organizations, health insurance plans, to get, to encourage them to invest in this area through, in the schools is to say, point out that, hey, this is a, a great investment for you all because the big problem nowadays, now that we have all these vaccines for infectious disease, is behavioral um, mm. issues where um, you need to actually be educating kids on what's healthy nutrition, um, what's uh, you know, a good physical education program, how do you fit physical activity in with your instruction so that it's complementary and it's synergistic and it's not going to hurt your teaching and reading, writing, and math. So, there's, there's lots of different ways that we can, I think, bring the health and the education sector together. And in, in Arizona in particular, the education sector starve for money. And the health sector can provide mm. uh, some money because if they see a return on investment, then it's a great opportunity for them. And we've done some interesting research that I think distills that message for the health sector. So we, we do know that... that typically or traditionally people have been um, against funding things that are preventative because it takes so long to see the efficacy and the impact. Mm -hmm. Have you run up against any of that data? So if you're a kid in second grade, it's hard to kind of quantify or see the right. impact until you're an adult that either has or does not have diabetes. So what are you doing about that? Right. So, and we have heard that same concern as we've talk, been talking to the health organizations. And what we found was that um, we were, um, when you look at the short-term benefits of moderate to vigorous physical activity, that there is immediate first-year savings. Oh, wow. And that when you look at all the research studies and kind of pull that all together, it's about 30 to $50 per student per year in savings. And that's when you spread all that, 
the savings around all the students, not just the unhealthy students. Mm. Whereas I mentioned earlier, the Power Youth Health Program is ten dollars per student per year. So when you actually do the math on that, so you, net only, positive of you only need yeah. about thirty percent of your health organizations to even to fund it, and they actually will still be um, net um, neutral cash flow even in the first year. Right. Then those long-term benefits are kind of icing on the cake, right. but those are the really big numbers uh, come when those chronic conditions start to happen in adulthood. But keep in mind now that what's happening is kids are getting so little act physical activity and they're ingesting so much sugar and um, uh, high-fat food um, that they're getting these prediabetes um, even as teenagers, 23% of teenagers in the U.S. have prediabetes. That means they're on their way to becoming Ooh, diabetic. A quarter of all kids. That's crazy. Yeah. And so the right now the projections are that one out of three children in classrooms across the country, including Arizona, are going to become diabetic. Now, that's a huge increase. It used to be that 3% of the population was diabetic back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Wow. As recently as the 90s. So we're talking now 33%. That's even higher in, in Mexican-American and Native American communities. Um, and so we ex can expect between a third and a half of adults in the future, unless we do something uh, now, we're going to end up with a serious diabetes epidemic. Now, the thing is diabetes is also extremely expensive. It's about $15,000 per year per person. That compares to, say, heart disease, which is around $10,000 and not having chronic conditions, $5,000 per year um, for an adult. So you can imagine once you have a state where a third to a half of adults have diabetes, diabetes, you have no money for anything else. So you're talking about a prolonged recession in the future uh, where all the money in the family, that any money that's available is going to healthcare costs. So even Because even though something like Medicaid uh, is supposed to pay for your healthcare, there's so many things that don't fall through the cracks that aren't covered. And in the future, the government's going to have to cut back on how much they pay because it's they're going to have so many uh, people with those conditions that they're going to cut that back. So the whole thing is a vicious right. circle pointing downward. And we're trying to reverse that. And we want Arizona to become the first state that actually reverses those trends and gets them going in a positive direction. So as we hear those really, really alarming statistics, um, what can our listeners do? So just to, an education perspective or just an advocacy or awareness perspective? Well, let me, let, let me real quick circle back here. I read a study from 2012 that said that 10% of Americans had diabetes and it cost $250 billion a year. Mm -hmm. And that's five years ago. I don't know if I just didn't find a current right, yeah. study on Google. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, so now, and this, each year it gets worse. So of course. Uh, the, some of the more recent numbers are 14%. Okay. Diabetes and it's probably now 300, 350 billion a year. So, it uh, it's it's a real moving target. Literally every year we have to update our statistics. Unfortunately, in the wrong direction. Oh. And so it's it's not one of the. Unfortunately, it's. Uh, I don't think there's too much alarmism here. It's just a, it's, it's we're really heading in this direction. Mm. And at a certain point, it will taper off. But one of the challenges is that, for example, the way we look at statistics really has a big impact on how we interpret what's going on. Right. So, for example, if you look in a lot of states now, the obesity rate is no longer increasing like it was before. 
Now, a lot of that is it's capping out at 30, 35, 40, 40% in many states. But what happens is that's hiding the fact that within the folks that are obese, the degree of obesity keeps worsening. And mm. moving to what, over 100 pounds obese, that's what they call morbidly obese. And that's when you have much more serious health problems, much multiple chronic, chronic conditions. And that's when the costs get even more expensive. And when, you, when kids start getting obese when they're children, when they're teens, then they're going to become um, obese, mor morbidly obese in a much higher percentage because it no just doubt. keeps escalating as they get older. Mm. And then those conditions, at, the longer you have those conditions, the more it's weakening your system and that's in the costs escalate there. So we're really just seeing the very beginning of the true cost of the diabetes epidemic because still a lot of those folks that have diabetes are still relatively young. That's one of the, you talked about how it's kind of a hard time to really get our brains around statistics like that and $250 billion is, it's such a, a, a huge number, it almost washes over you. Um, yeah. This article that I read talked about how after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans uh, in 2005, uh, in 2005, two uh, Congress people from Louisiana went to the federal government and asked for $250 billion to rebuild the city. Hmm. And that equates to $515,000 for every resident. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, so sometimes it's really good to think in those terms. So break things down. It helps too. And so, for example, our costs in the U.S. are $10,000. Health costs are $10,000 per person. And that's, so $3.2 trillion per year is hard to imagine. But $10,000 right. per person we can, especially when you think about the average family making about $55,000 a year. Right. And then you realize that after taxes and such, you know, how can you possibly afford that? Because, hey, we also have housing, food, transportation, mm -hmm. lots of other, education, lots of other costs there. And um, so it's good to bring it down to that kind of personal and family level. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, thinking about if you were given odds, say, and you had several children nowadays, and you were told, hey, there's one out of three chance, one out of two chance that your children would be diabetic. I mean, you'd move heaven and earth to prevent that. Um, and so it's by getting those statistics down to that kind of personal mm, level right. that we start to get that emotional response, which uh, helps to really support the statistics. And I, that's what I call stories and statistics. You need both to really get that big impact. And then people really start to tune in and then they really want to do something about it. They call that... Like what we use in uh, when pitch coaching is social math, using money to look at or looking looking at numbers to really look at social problems. And the uh, two hundred and fifty billion for New Orleans—that's a really good, a really good indicator. I like that one. So you were asking Centauri about before I rudely interrupted with with my fancy statistics. <laughs> <laughs> what are the things that people can do? So I I think uh, a lot of people are somewhat aware of these things, but the statistics that you gave, and you and I have had many conversations, I still had no idea that it was that alarming. So what can folks do to educate themselves? What can they do to kind of move the, the needle uh, in their own homes or with their, their communities? Well, when, for example, right now there's a recess bill in the Arizona House of Representatives, there are more and more recess bills happening around the country. Um, 
eventually we believe there's going to be more and more physical activity, physical mm -hmm. education bills. There's going to be, we believe Arizona is a pioneer in including PE and health ed in the A3F metrics. Well, we think a lot of other states are going to be engaging in that. And it really helps for individuals and parents to get involved, to email their state boards of education, email their <coughs> legislators, and especially when there's something that might be coming up or that's active now, to participate in the process. Give them a call, too. Um, if they're not there, leave them a voicemail. If their voicemail box is full, then send them an email and call them back later. Um, so those kinds of things really have a huge impact because they're not used to hearing from people on anything. So even a relatively small number of people can have a big impact on these types of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then if, if they're particularly interested in what we're working on, then we're officially launching this Healthy Future Arizona initiative this year. You can go to healthyfuturearizona.org or healthyfutureaz.org, and, um, and, and that'll be a more and more robust site to help people also figure out how to get involved and to get some any statistics or stories that they find uh, helpful. And if you're a parent listening right now, what is one, and you have some concerns about your child, what is one thing that you could do in your institute in your household right now? Well, I think it's good for folks to keep in mind that that target of 60 minutes a day, physical activity, and uh, turn off the screens and put the kids outside, just give them a ball and a few mm -hmm. things to play with. And, um, do they still make take calls? Take them to the park. Do kids still whatever. go outside? They some some of them need to be re, reintroduced to the out, out of doors. There's even something nowadays called nature deficit disorder, and uh, no, the kids not. not getting out to that's getting out in the out of doors. Is that real? Well, you know, Finland is now has a national public health recommendation oh. that says that people need to spend more time in the forest in order to reduce the amount of depression that they have there. Well, I believe that 100. So, yeah. So there, so there's, uh, there, and so I think that the combination of turning off the main alternative, which is the screen, um, whether it's a phone or TV or anything else, and then giving that other opportunity and making it fun. So, you know, a ball or frisbee, there's lots of different ways to do that. A soccer ball is always a good one. And um, get them involved in, um, you know, a sport at school um, or, you know, a, intramural type sport or whatever. And then also, um, I think we have a sense of what's good to, better to eat than we're eating now. And I'd say, instead of trying to change everything all at once, make some changes that you can actually do over time. So maybe you're used to serving a meal that might be, uh, you know, fry, have a, a lot of fried element to it, um, that uh, might, maybe you're used to eating a lot of sweets. Instead of saying, oh, I'm going to cut that 100%, and then in a week or two saying, I can't do this anymore, cut it, you know, maybe 30%, and just keep working at that and just make improvements over time in a way that you can sustain and not something that you do all of a sudden cold turkey and then you aren't able to, to keep it going. So equip yourself for success. By yeah, yeah. Get, get started yeah. in steps instead of trying to change everything all along. Small bites, small bites. Well, that was music to my ears talking about contacting local representatives. As our listeners know, we talk a lot about that, the action pieces. Reach out to your city council people, your mayors, your your, um, your national local officials, board. Your, your local school board. And if you would be so kind as to provide us with language that when our listeners contact, contact us and say, I'd like to reach out to the school board, what should I say? 
Right. Well, I, and you don't um, need to give it to me now. Just uh, or now would be fine. But okay, sure. But um, and we can do more later or whatever. But um, one idea is that it's good to just call um, or go to your school and ask them how much recess do you have? How mm. many minutes a day of recess do you have? How many minutes per week of physical uh, physical activity, physical education do you have? A lot of schools have cut back both recess and physical education and actually getting a number from them. And then remember that 60 minutes a day we're going for? Yeah. So if the recess and the physical education per day is not adding up to 60, then you're going to say, well, why don't we have more of that? Why, why, don't we, why don't you do more recess time? Why don't we do more physical education time? Let's open up the playground you know, 30 minutes before school and keep it open for an hour afterwards and let the kids play there. Um, what's your plan for increasing physical activity with kids? How, what kind of nutrition do you have? What are you serving for your school lunches? Um, are you serving breakfast? Breakfast in the classroom is a great program. It's federally funded. So it's really more a matter of the school deciding to go ahead with it. Hmm. And financially, it's, it's not a significant issue for them. It's just the logistics of getting it started. That's the hard part. If parents say, hey, we want to have breakfast in the classrooms, that's going to uh, encourage a lot of schools to do that too. And in the spirit that there are no dumb questions, just dumb people, why is there no longer recess? Well, what's happened is over time, the signals that we sent to our school leaders was to focus on reading, writing, and math. And what we did is we created things like it used to be the Ames test, it's now the AZ Merit test. We created something called No Child Left Behind um, back in the early 2000s, which was a federal program, but it <clears throat> encouraged states to put in assessments, these so-called standardized tests that a lot of people are learning that they don't like so much. And those tests were all around reading, writing, and math. And so the schools were receiving the, the, this communication that, hey, I'm supposed to focus on those subjects. And there was, they felt so much pressure hmm. in those subjects that inadvertently, as an unintended consequence, they said, hey, how can I find more minutes? Well, uh, I'll cut it in recess. I'll cut it in physical education. I'll cut it in arts education. Mm. And by the way, we added arts education into the A3F metric as well because we don't want them to cut any of these other subjects because they're all important to keep students motivated. Some students are really into the arts. That's the one class that keeps them interested in school, and we cut that out. Some kids just love gym. That's their favorite subject. Or recess, a lot of people say, recess is always my favorite subject. You take that away, then school is something they hate. And we need kids to love learning because they're going to have to not just learn K-12 through and in college, but all through their lives. They're going to have to keep making adjustments. So we want them to love learning, and part of that is giving them a lot of different subjects and knowing that one of those or more is going to click with them. Awesome. Well, I, I love the fact that you started talking about um, the school down in Tucson that saw such exponential effects. And for me, you'd start to look for an answer to these massive problems, and the answer is oftentimes right in front of your face, just affect what you can reach out and touch affect the schools in your neighborhood start yeah. there mm -hmm. um, because the grassroots and your effort and your energy that you put in are really going to drive these programs and then make them successful mm -hmm. you bet and that um, starting at that scale really provides a great foundation for everything we're doing
because when you're not having to convince everyone, but you've already got certain things started, like it's certain school districts or certain communities, certain families, and they get it, it's a lot easier to get the ball rolling and to keep it rolling. Awesome. As our time is drawing to a close, Centauri, what have I forgotten? What have we forgotten to talk about? Uh, you mentioned Finland. Are there any uh, nations, countries that are doing a good job at what you're trying to do? Well, a lot of folks bring up Finland because it's very interesting. Um, so it's actually a similar size country to big western state like in Montana and Arizona. And they literally have 15 minutes of recess for every 45 minutes of instruction mm. because they realize we're going to have an intense learning experience and then we need the kids to get out there and run around. And yet they are in these international um, standardized tests. Um, they are rated typically in the top five, mm -hmm. even when you throw in places like Singapore and Taiwan that traditionally do very well there. Now, what's happening is that in a lot of countries, they have focused so much on cramming and getting ready for these tests that they've started, they've been doing some of these things where not, kids aren't getting enough um, activity. So, for example, China, even though they don't have as big a problem with child obesity, they've got a huge problem with diabetes there. And um, so they are now engaged in a major national effort to increase physical activity among the kids. Because even though traditionally they think of education as being a very intellectual thing and preparing for these big tests, they now realize that they're actually harming their society by over-focusing on the kind of purely academic, purely cognitive approach. And education is not just, you know, the head up, it's the entire uh, body. And so I think we'll be seeing a lot of countries moving in this direction, and certainly the UK is moving in this direction more. Mexico actually has a, a major sugar tax that they put in place, and um, they're seeing some significant improvements in obesity from that. And so different countries are responding in different ways, but the root causes are not enough physical activity and poor nutrition. And so there's many ways we can start working on that. And we try to do it in a way that kind of maybe leading the community, but not getting so far ahead that they don't know what's going on. You get a backlash. So we're really trying to educate folks as we go. Okay. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. Is there, are there any closing thoughts that you would like to share? No, I appreciate it. I love what you all are doing and uh, tackling some, um, you know, a lot of real life um, challenges that we have in our communities and going out and talking to folks that are working on those things. So um, keep, keep up the great work. Excellent. Well, as Scott was saying, um, in regard to these issues to really start making a change, a big thing you can be doing is reaching out to your school boards and your elected officials. So. You can contact the show, contact Centauri or myself, and we will provide you with templates of emails or letters or talking points to talk to your local schools or your school boards with. So reach out to us through the uh, show's website or you can find the show on Facebook. Um, and I'll always, if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show and tell a friend. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.